0: Alright, so we've talked about initiative, we've talked about keeping things at the table moving, so now we're going to jump to the other side, effectively playing the monsters. You, you usually want to build an encounter for a certain reason, or you want to evoke a certain thing, you want to use cool terrain features, you want that battle to seem exciting, seem cool, give players an opportunity to do fun and interesting things, so if your generic orc 1 is the same as generic orc 2, you're kind of defeating yourself. So, do you guys have either one have any particular techniques you use to make sure that you're playing your NPCs, whether they be you know humans or elves or dwarves or Balrogs, to make sure that they're exciting to play and they're exciting opposition?
1: For me, it comes down to my descriptions, my story element. Um, most players who are experienced are pretty familiar with the monster manual, so they know what the, the the monsters look like and what they're going to do. So it's up to me to mix it up a little bit. And, you know, if I give them a different weapon or swap some spells out, that makes it more interesting. Um, a lot of times it's just how I role-play that monster. You know, if I let them be a, um, a wandering predator, so they're working on instinct, if I let them be a, an intelligent... Hunter, if it's a spellcaster and I'm having them work tactically with a, a, a melee fighter, it's um, that's what mixes up combat. That's what keeps it exciting. 4th um, edition really helped GMs with that because they broke the monsters down into categories. They made a lot of very clear differences and gave us really good tools to... Um, to split them up and show us how to use things tactically and interestingly. So using that knowledge, using that experience, and carrying it over into whatever system I'm using is a very valuable asset that we can, uh, we can take with us.
2: One of the things I do, and this this might be another piece of advice that will raise some eyebrows, but you, you know there is a difference between building a combat encounter and running that combat encounter. Okay, so when I'm sitting away from the table and I'm building the combat encounter, I build a fair encounter or a challenging encounter or an easy encounter, whatever it is I'm building. And that's, that's it. I just build like a DM would build the encounter. But when I'm running that encounter at the table, I play to win. Okay, and when I, what I mean is that I am role-playing my monsters. I am, I am my monsters. I know why they're fighting. I know what they want. And I am doing everything in my power and using the best tactics available to do that. And in addition, every time a monster takes an action, I have to have some other thing that it does. Even if it just snarls, even if it yells an insult, even if it fixates on someone, whatever it is, when that monster's turn comes up, I am role-playing that monster. I'm not simply taking actions. And that's great because that sort of role-playing begets role-playing. Like, if there's a dragonborn paladin of Bahamut in the party, and they're fighting a group of kobolds who are worshippers of Tiamat, well, you can only sling so many insults in character at a paladin's player before the player gets pissed off and starts yelling back. And that's just as good as getting the character pissed off, as far as I'm concerned. So that sort of, you, you know, constant play, you know, it's the kobold's turn. The co- you know, So the kobold is going to hiss and bear its fangs before it lunges at the paladin, screaming, I'll send you back to your platinum worm, or whatever. Uh, if the paladin misses on an attack, the kobolds might make fun of him. They'll be like, oh, where's your dragon now? You know, I guess he wasn't looking or you know if one of their allies goes down they'll they'll taunt him about that it's like i Bombett didn't protect him huh and i i just because i'm in the mindset of the monsters and that might sound like this weirdly antagonistic way to play but in the end it's just role playing and it gets the players into the combat and it also keeps the combat from becoming a series of uh, toward the, No matter how descriptive you try to be, toward the end of any combat, you always get to that point where you're just trading attack rolls and numbers. And it's like, okay, he swings and six damage, and, he, and you desperately try as a DM to keep it fresh. It's like, well, he swings his axe again and, and does another thing. This time he swings it really hard. And there's only so many times you can say he swings his axe. So you've got to... If you want to keep the monsters interesting and keep the game interesting, you've got to be in the mindset of those monsters, and that means ultimately you've got to be on their side. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing it in character or out of character. That's the funny thing. If you roll a crit as your monsters, and you celebrate it the way a player would celebrate that crit, then that translates to the players as the monsters are celebrating their victory. And it's the same feeling, it's the same emotional response, and it's the same as role play. So that's how I keep the monsters interesting and engaging, even if it's just the same five orcs again.
0: One of the things I would I would take there, and this is another piece of advice I've stolen from you from one of your uh, rants earlier, is once the battle's pretty much decided, I'll just drop out of combat and start narrating that you know the last two orcs. You know, they throw themselves in a last-ditch effort, but you're easily able to overcome it and and kill them. Or I may even ask them, you know, the battles won, describe what the last couple actions look like because when you're just rolling back and forth, it does kind of, it stops being interesting or fun. So I want to try to keep that going. But the piece of advice that I would give, and I think that coincides with what you were saying, Angry, is to slow down. And when you roll, so if you roll that natural 20, don't just roll it and go oh okay critical hit you take double damage take a second and just like a character would go okay what does that hit look like on my side and then you describe that hit in those terms before you even tell them if it's a critical hit you know if you roll in front of them or or not but just take a moment and go okay that was a near miss so do i just say you missed or do i describe that attack and then narrate that you know it just happened to, to bank off your armor or another maybe an ally that they're fighting is able to get their weapon in there and deflect it and keep it a story element so it doesn't just evolve into an 18 or a 17. It's a it's a hit or a miss and it, I just think it keeps it interesting and that's one of the things that I struggle with because I am so overly concerned with keeping things moving quickly that I need to do a better job of slowing down and describing those attacks in detail based off of what I roll.
2: But if I can jump in there, if you try to do that through your entire battle, you're going to burn yourself out three quarters of the way through the battle. You're going to run out of ways to say, I swing an axe, no matter no matter if it's a crit, a near-miss or whatever, there's only so many body parts you can graze with an axe before you have run out of description and done all your... It's like one of those video games where the mo- where the enemies only had like five lines of recorded dialogue, so as you're fighting 50 of them, you keep hearing the same lines repeated over and over, which is why I say again, you've got to just get into the mindset of the monsters and do dialogue. It doesn't matter, like... Okay, so I rolled a crit, I could just say, you know, I swing he swings his axe real hard and buries it in your plate mail and you're staggered backwards. Or I could I could just be the monster and laugh at the guy and say, take that. It's just as effective a description, it's just as effective a story element, but it gives you a much bigger palette to work with. You know? Absolutely, so yeah. Don't yeah. just try to describe the blows. You will run out of description.
0: Well, and that actually, you know, can lead us into another topic is, you know, how many creatures is a good number? And I know that that's going to have a lot of factors, but, you know, do you want to fight 20 orcs or should you have two ogres? Is there a consideration of, you know, I would like to run a battle where the the PCs fight a whole horde of goblins, but then that means I have to keep up with 20 goblins. So is there something that, you know, a consideration you have for the number of opponents versus the number of PCs, or is it just the story that you're telling and it is what it is?
2: Um, Well, uh, there's a couple of things to consider. I mean, the biggest thing is that the more dynamic the fight is, the more interesting it's going to be, the more engaging it's going to be. I mean, a dragon can pretty much hold people's attention for three or four rounds, but there's still going to come that point where the party has it surrounded and it can't go anywhere and it's just trying to fight its way out of that dog pile. I try to avoid fights with single opponents because you don't get this dynamic fight. And I could go into a whole long rant on how the action economy really creates that problem, but I'm not going to. Well,
0: I do want to jump in because, again, it's another thing that I stole from you that I really like. I've done it in two different games now where, kind of like a monster movie, I had a creature that basically got a counterattack every time it was attacked by a PC. So, like, if five PCs attacked it, it got five counterattacks. Mm -hmm. And it made it for a very interesting battle, because then you had to have some considerations where, you know, it's almost dead, so maybe the wizard will run in and and get the last attack, but that wizard then has to realize it's going to get a counterattack, so if you don't kill it, it gets to hit you back. And it, it made for a very interesting battle that I think the PCs, because, again, again, it's not in the rules. They didn't know it was coming. But I really liked the way that played out in that particular battle because this was sort of like a, it was like an ogre mini-giant type thing, and it had a big club, and every time someone got close, it got a kind of a retroactive hit against them. And it just made a much more dynamic battle, and I was very happy about it. And then another situation, I had a four-armed mutant creature, and it would take two attacks on its turn, and I gave it two counterattacks. And I think if you're only going to have one creature, then that action economy does kind of break down when you have five PCs going and one NPC. So that's a really good way to break that up. And again, I really liked how that played at the table.
2: Yeah, you can even go with a lower encounter level or challenge rating or XP, mo- you know, whatever your system you're using. You go with a lower creature and then give it two sets of turns and treat it as if it was two creatures. You run the balance that way and then the creature gets an extra set of actions or, or two sets of actions, however far you want to drop down in the challenge rating. Like use a weaker dragon and then give it three turns. You know. But but as far as the right number of creatures, on the other hand, if you start finding that you can't keep track of the creatures effectively, uh Start using shortcuts. Like, for example, uh, if I decide I want to do a battle against 20 or 30 goblins, whatever system I'm running, uh, those goblins have so few hit points that unless someone does one point of damage, they're going to kill it. And that's my assumption. You know, I was running minions before 4th edition invented minions because once you put that number of creatures in the battle... Uh, Their hit points have to be that low just to keep the balance anyway, so assume that any good hit is a kill. Let the players roll their damage and fake it if you have to and say, oh, four hit, four damage, well, you killed them. You know, whatever you want to do, but if you can't keep track of the hit points on 20 or 30 goblins, and I wouldn't expect you to, then just fudge it, fake it. Keep track of it in terms of hit dice. Like, uh, if the average weapon does a d6 of damage, then that means that every every three hit points that a creature has, that's one hit that it can take from that weapon. So if a creature's got six hit points, each one can take two hits. Let the players roll the hit points, but you just track the hits. One, two, and then dead. uh, These are just shorthand methods that don't disrupt the math of the game.
0: Yeah, I think for a new DM, if you are going to run like a large scale battle, that's a great shorthand way to do that is don't worry so much about the minutia that it's got seven hit points or eight hit points, but it can take one hit or two hit. I did that with the fourth edition for a long time I, again, I think they became official later, but I did what I called super minions, and basically it was two hits or two X minions. hit point. You know, if, you, if somebody got like a crit or they did like a ton of damage, I'd let it die, but mostly it was two hits and they died. So they, they didn't realize it was a minion because they hit it and it didn't die, but then it still didn't have all these hit points I had to keep up with. So it was an effective way to do that we kind of left off on, you know, how many monsters are too many monsters and, how you know, some shorthand techniques that you can use, and Angry brought up not worrying so much about the actual number of hit points, maybe tracking them more like a minion or a super minion, one hit, two hits, three hits, but don't it doesn't really matter the amount of damage. So, Caleb, did you have anything to add on that?
1: Uh, yeah, this is definitely something I always struggled with in my uh, early days running games, Um When I was first learning how to do this, I very strictly uh, adhered to the charts in the DMG based on experience and CR and how many monsters of a certain level you should throw into a party. And that's exactly what I found. And a lot of times I would have to find a monster that met the CR requirements instead of using a monster that I wanted to or felt good for the story because I didn't know how to do it properly. Um, In more recent years, I've learned how to be more flexible when it comes to picking a monster or building an encounter that is proper for the story and then balancing it on the back end. And there is certainly no right answer for how many monsters to put into a party. I think the right answer is how you run those monsters. And if you want a whole bunch of monsters, um, just give them, but you want a, a more difficult monster or a, a higher level challenge, you give them uh, less hit points, or you lower their armor class, or you restrict the damage they can do or the type of attacks they can do. Um, in a game I'm writing right now, I want to give low-level players a challenge, but I don't want to limit myself to quarter CR or uh, half-hit dice creatures. So I'll I'll take a CR1 or CR2 monster and just cut their hit points or pull some armor off of them or something like that. Uh, I always go back to the horror story of a game I played a long time ago where a brand-new GM decided it was okay to put 30 zombies on the table uh, for our third level party with no cleric and no healer. So if you just stick with the numbers, something bad's going to happen. It's all about keeping things kind of fluid and adapting as you go.
0: I think that's another thing that 4th edition did very well and particularly if you had the subscription to the DDI service where they had like the monster creator and you could take you know, an ogre and you could you know dial it down and lower their CR and lower their hit points or you could amp it up and make it more powerful and I, I think that was very freeing for people to like you said I, like I really want these players to fight a, a, an ogre but an ogre would kill them so how do I make that work? Uh, you know, sometimes you can do a story element. I had uh, I had some low-level players once fight an Eden, and the way I had done it in the story is the Eden had been caught in a cave-in, and it was like half-dead when they found it. So they were fighting it at half-hit points. So I got them to fight the cool monster I wanted them to fight, but I didn't kill them outright. So, yeah, absolutely don't be beholden necessarily to that book as if it's the holy gospel. It's a guideline, and... Your goal as a DM is to tell a cool and fun story, and if you have to fudge some hit points, that's fine. Uh, you know, I know Angry likes to run battles on the level. That's separate than playing with them beforehand and going, okay, this, you know, this ogre has a, a gimp arm because it was cut off, so he, you know, he has less attack power. Uh, but you still roll it right at the table, type of a thing. Excuse me. <clears throat> Alrighty, righty, so. Kind of, kind of close in on the end. There's a couple other topics we definitely want to hit on. And is one for me is like environmental considerations because I've I've tried to do this several times and I, I don't think I do a very good job of it. And it's something that uh, Sly Flourish or I guess Mike Shays actual name talks a lot about. And a lot of those fourth edition articles that I read focused on having like magical terrain features where if you're on certain squares you get extra damage or there's you know like fire spouts like in the The Princess Bride and these fire guts came up and and hit people. So is there anything that you guys like to do or try to avoid in environmental effects to keep things interesting or exciting?
2: I think the biggest mistake that people run into with environmental effects and terrain is the idea of considering them kind of an afterthought. The idea like, okay, I'm going to have this room filled with goblins and then, oh, I'll put a table here and I'll put this brazier that they can knock over here and kind of like adding the terrain in afterwards instead of designing the terrain and the monsters and everything else to work together, considering them as all elements of the fight. I mean, if you have a group of hobgoblin archers in a 30-foot room and it's a completely open room, that is really different than a group of hobgoblin archers on top of a hill a hundred yards away uh, in a copse of trees. You know, So if you think of your terrain just as something you're going to plunk down in the battle, then you're already in trouble. You really need to design the battle and the terrain together. And sometimes you'll design the battle around the terrain. Sometimes you'll think, I would really love to do a room filled with fire geysers. And eh, maybe I'll have some uh, fire elementals that live in there. And in that case, you're starting with the terrain first. Yeah,
0: and I would agree with that. I think sometimes, going back to running a monster effectively, that you know, if if the goblins live in this forest... Then they're probably going to know where the good ambush spots are. They're going to they're going to have already decided that hey this is where our archers go and this is where we're going to dig pits. So it makes sense to work it from that angle, like rather than just throwing stuff in there. Uh, and I think I put in the notes one of the examples is you know the 30 foot tower that goblins are in. Make sure if you put something like an environmental terrain in the in your game, somebody's going to try to find a way to use it. So if you put, you know, three goblins at the top of a wobbly tower, someone's going to try to knock that tower over. So don't put it in there unless you want them to interact with it. But at the same time, understand that that's something that players, particularly your more creative types who aren't just, uh, you know, uh, pit bulls will we'll look to try to do those things. They're going to want to try to use the terrain in their, in their favor. So it's a good idea to add some of that in there and, and understand that it's going to get played with. It's, it's like a Lego set you're putting on the board. People are going to pick up pieces and start putting them together.
2: Also, you as a, like, um, two things on that. Number one, you as the DM should be using this stuff. If there is a rickety ladder and one of the players goes up there then one of the goblins should run over and yank that ladder and try to knock them down. You know, if you do it, your players will start to do it. And you want them playing with the terrain. I'm telling you right now, it may seem like a pain in the ass when they start, you know, screwing with your terrain, but you want them doing that. It's a blast. And the other thing is, don't overload your terrain with rules. If I had, uh, this is a problem I actually had with 4th edition, not I'm griping or anything, but the whole idea of terrain powers where you would write, there is a table in this space so that if you are in this space as a standard action, you can flip the table up and then you will gain this advantage from covering And as well. I know what a table is. I know what I can do with a table. I don't have to write rules for it. Just tell me that it's there. We're all sitting at a table right now. That's what a table is. I know you can flip it up. As long as I have rules for cover, I can apply those to the table.
0: And we're back. Hey, So, So when I left, uh, Angry, you were ranting about uh, the overcodification of 4th edition and having to have rules for a table?
1: Yeah. I was, damn those tables. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> mad about tables.
2: Don't write God. rules for tables. I'm just saying that as a DM, trust yourself to be able to figure out what happens. You, you don't have to figure out what a rain barrel is going to do. You know what a barrel is, you can handle it. You know what fire does, you don't need rules for it. Trust yourself to wing it. And your players will actually appreciate that because they know what a table is and they'll be able to figure out what they can do with it just by the fact that it's a table. And I apologize for the long rant that I got on about tables. I'm very angry about tables.
0: <laughs> Fuck tables.
2: Damn it, tables. <laughs>
0: all right, so I know this is one of the things that we, we kind of all really wanted to talk about was uh, win conditions. And you know I think that's something, particularly new DMs, probably go into most battles thinking, okay, well, I'm going to put five goblins in there. They're probably going to kill them all, but they might keep one alive. So that, you know, you can have a, a funny little tag along that helps them out. But realistically, in a, in a lot of situations, not everything's going to fight to the death. You know, if it's a natural predator, like a dire bear, or a, it's not really a natural predator, but you know what I mean, or an owlbear, it's a predator. So it's probably hungry. It wants to eat your food. But if you hit it hard enough, you're no longer food. It's going to run away. So owl bears aren't going to fight to the death necessarily. If you're fighting a bunch of goblins. If there's thirty of them and five of you, they're gonna fight. If it's now suddenly four of them, five of you, they're probably gonna run away. So it's not just but it's not just necessarily, you know, giving up like a morale check, but what kind of things can you build in that are win conditions other than just killing everything on the board? And I know Anger you said you specifically had some stuff you want to talk about on that one.
2: Yeah, I absolutely hate this question. <laughs> Sorry? Uh, honestly, I hate uh, you, you always hear people talking about alternate goals and ways to end their combat early. And that, to me, immediately says that they have the wrong mindset when they're building their combats. Because if, if you're asking, you know, how can how can we let the players end this early or end this differently than killing everything, that tells me you didn't go in knowing why the sides were fighting. I mean... It, As you said, nothing goes into a fight without a reason, without wanting something. There's only four ways that a fight can end. A fight can end because one side gets what it wants. A fight can end because one side can never get what it wants. It loses what it wants. A fight can end because one side is incapable of fighting any further. Or a fight can end because one side is unwilling to fight any further. So you talk about your natural predators. Once a natural predator gets injured, it is unwilling to risk itself any further. It is going to leave the battlefield. That just that ends the fight. You know, if the if the Emperor's guards have caught up to the party because they're escorting the diplomat who has the secret battle plans, you know, off to the rebels, and they manage to kill the diplomat, well they won. The battle is over now. They don't care whether they kill the PCs or not. Now their next now now what they want to do is just get away from the fight alive. They don't, they don't want to stay engaged. They're going to retreat. But if you haven't thought about that ahead of time and said, why is this fight happening? What do the monsters or NPCs or bad guys want? And how far are they willing to push themselves? You don't know when that fight ended. You're just going to run it to the ground. And then it's going to get boring. But if you do know then you don't need to spend a lot of time thinking, what are the wind conditions? Because the wind conditions will happen very naturally. It's, well, oh, they killed the diplomat. They won. But the PCs are still trying to kill them, so now they have to get away. you know. And then you change your goals. And then, again, you just play the creatures, play for what they want.
0: So uh, a quick way to summarize that would be anytime that you're building an encounter you need to have somewhere written down what your side wants or what it's trying to protect. And if those things are met or are no longer able to be met, then you should at least do some sort of check to see if, okay, you know, do they want to run? Do they want to fight to the death? Um, So it's all about the motivation of the two opposing forces.
2: Why even make it a check? I mean, it's a decision. When when the goblins go into battle with the monsters or with the PCs they they've been ordered to kill the PCs but they're cowardly the moment one of them gets hurt that one is probably out of the battle as soon as he has an excuse or an opportunity he's running for it he's a goblin he's a coward that's a decision he can make it doesn't need to be a die roll you as the DM if you are in the mindset of that goblin you know, you're going into the battle now, you feel, okay, maybe we can win this, I'm I'm fully okay, and then, oh my god, he just stabbed me! <laughs> Screw this! Unless there's a hobgoblin with a whip right behind you, keeping you in the battle. Right. And, if you're playing that out, the PCs will see the hobgoblin with the whip, keeping him in the battle, because, remember, on every monster's turn, that monster is behaving somehow, you want to do that. Then the players can enact plans like, well, let's take out the Hobgoblin. Ignore the goblins. The goblins will run when the Mangalore, oh, I'm sorry, Hobgoblin is is taken out.
0: I think I've actually played in that exact scenario at some point. I remember being in a game where there was a Hobgoblin overlord and we tuck him out in the goblin. Go. Um, <laughs> so what about you, Caleb? But what, you, do you ever write in specific win conditions or is that something you do kind of like on the fly? Like, okay, well, in this case, it's probably the battle's over.
1: When I approach win conditions, quote-unquote, for me, it's more about being prepared for the crazy things my players are going to come up with. So it's it's less of how are they going to get away from this monster, because I know they're going to kill it. That's what you do. You kill things. Um... It's, it's more of, okay, how are they going to kill this? How are they going to get to their side of the map? Um, what To harken back to the environments we were just talking about, I plan out, I don't really plan out, but I think of all the ways they could make use of the environment I've given them. You, you never provide a detail if it doesn't have a use. If you say it's there, it's there for a reason. And if they ask... If something is there, or why something is there, they're, they're trying to use it for something. So, when I think of alternate wind conditions, I'm really thinking of alternate methods for them to kill everything that I put on the field. Are they going to try to knock the tower over? Are they going to try to force them into the river and then raise the water level and drown everybody? What are they going to set on fire? What is going to explode? That's what I think of when I think of alternate ways of doing something. And So it's a lot more preparation, but on the same hand, that just gets me more familiar with the game, with the world I've written. It gives me more confidence in role-playing out these monsters and these characters that I've I've presented to my players. So it works out.
0: Okay. Um I think for me, I'm probably in the in the middle between you two. I uh, I want to give my players a creative way to take out the opposition. I don't want to just, you know, they're all just a sack of hit points, and when you empty the sack, you win. I want there to be some creative things that you can do using the fireplace or the cliff or the river. But I really like what Angry was saying about knowing the motivations of the opposition and if they can no longer attain their goals, then why are they still fighting? And I don't know that I necessarily – you know thought about it or quantified it that way but there are certain examples i can think of in my games where i've been like okay there's really no reason for this battle to be continuing my side's going to retreat or going to run or, or they're just going to burn the place down because you know at this point it no longer matters but i try not to just keep going until everybody swung their sword a hundred times and the battle's over all right so we've I think we've done a pretty decent job of examining combat from from basically from A to Y. So Mm -hmm. I want to finish up here with Z. So you're running your first campaign or your first game for your friends, and they get to the big boss, whether it be the dragon that's attacking the town, the king's vizier who's behind the plot, or it's just the orc chieftain. How do you make that final battle feel epic? Is there anything in particular you do differently than all the other battles that you've had? You know, how do you make sure that that battle is memorable? And uh, I know, Angry, you've had some articles and stuff you've talked about specifically, but uh, just in general, what do you do for those big boss fights? Do you do them differently? And then if you do want to talk about that three-stage boss battle thing, please do.
2: Alright, well obviously I will mention the three-stage boss battle thing. Uh, which was an attempt to fix the action economy problem in 4th edition that we were talking about earlier. It was an alternate way of handling solo monsters to make them more dynamic. And I think I ended up writing like four or five articles beating that particular horse to death. So if you want to check that out, it's, it's also on my website. But basically it's structured boss fights kind of like uh, battles in uh, God of War where every so often something would happen to change the battle, where the the opponent would somehow break free, and the battle would have to go in a different direction, and the players would have to keep up. And that was the idea. It was just an idea of making the, the combats more dynamic. In a more general sense, though, I think the only thing I really do differently for those... Big boss fights, apart from, of course, the normal system stuff you could do like use a higher CR monster or use a solo or, you know, use a wild card if you're playing Savage Worlds, whatever it is, uh, is that I make sure I spend a lot more time on that encounter, you know, away from the table. Like, I really sit down and think through how to design the environment, how to design the opponent, how to design his support, and I make sure that I've thought through how the players are going to respond to what's going on in that combat, and had a few counters ready. So like if I know that you know the guy's an evil wizard and the party's just going to try and surround him, beat him down, and interrupt his spells, well then I I'm going to have to add some uh, minions in there, some something that he can summon or guards that he can use, just to kind of get in their way and you know, or maybe we, we need to break he needs to be able to break lines of sight so that they can't range him to death, or maybe at some point he casts a fly spell and now he can fly around and snipe from above, but I just kind of try to counteract the party a little bit more uh, because those big boss fights, those masterminds will have plans in place for groups of adventurers kicking down their door and trying to stop them.
0: They they should at least. If not, they're not very good overlords.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So (laughs) just think about what your party is going to do and figure out ways to counteract that a little and force them down into their B plan or their C plan.
0: Your uh, your three stage boss battle articles, what what it made me think of is uh, I think Mass Effect 2, which I'm a huge fan of the Mass Effect games. There's one in particular battle where um, you're like on a prison ship, and you're trying to the the main bad guy keeps hiding behind these shields, and anytime he's behind the shield, you really can't hurt him. And of course, there's a bunch of minions that run out, so you have a situation where you for a couple rounds you can't actually hurt the main bad guy you have to defeat the minions, then you turn your attention back to the main boss guy. And I can see that parallel very well with like some sort of magical ritual where the the wizard, there's like a four or five stage ritual they're trying to accomplish, and you have wave after wave of minions that are trying to give him time to do that. So it doesn't just evolve into five PCs surrounding a wizard and it's just you know beating the, that horse to death in that sense. And I think that's kind of what I'm after is a way to make that feel different than the other battles throw on different ways of uh, different waves of creatures keep it exciting but don't have a one situation where oh well you didn't kill all the minions so now the world's over and kukulu comes Mm -hmm. through and it's over there still has to be ways that if they have one bad round the game still doesn't just end because of that does that make any sense
2: it does, though. I, I am a little uh, meaner about letting my players lose if they lose. I mean, there's a certain point where that ritual is over, Cthulhu comes out, and the world is destroyed. And, As it should. Uh, <laughs> my advice to any DM is always do not point your story gun at anything if you're not willing to pull the trigger. So if your plot is about destroying the world... Uh, then you had better be prepared to destroy that world and start a new campaign. Otherwise, don't do it because there's always the chance it's going to happen.
0: Well, I, I agree. I think that uh, there's actually like a management principle that I learned. Same thing, like don't. It's not threatens the wrong word, but don't basically don't say you're going to do something and then don't do it because as soon as you do that, your credibility's over. Like you, you will never get that credibility back. So if you do tell your players, you know, if you don't save the princess in two rounds, dragon eats her then three rounds later, she better be dead.
2: You never have to worry about your bluff being called if you're never bluffing.
0: (laughs) That is absolutely true. All right, Caleb, what about you? Is there anything in particular you've done, any specific examples of big epic boss battles and how you've run them?
1: What I do primarily is run my epic boss like a player. I make that epic boss as a actual PC. I roll him just like I let my PCs roll. I build him like an actual PC. And I give him every possible advantage with his gear and his spells. I will put him in an environment where he is at his strengths. You know, I, I build the dungeon to support him. Um, uh, there was one... Uh, One campaign I was running, I didn't get to get fully to this point, but I actually had the main bad guy, so to speak, was an actual entire party of anti-PCs. And as the players developed their characters, so I developed the bad guys. Mm -hmm. They were kind of equally increasing in level, and there were occasional encounters of the uh, you know brief brief combat no one really wins or loses. the bad guys monologue and leave to build that tension and every time they you know the PC the players could tell they were getting a little bit stronger every time but there was more threat and had we finished that we would have had a huge dungeon with you know five good guys and five bad guys that were pretty evenly matched. And we would have run it, you know, just like you were not just fighting a monster that hits you and, and might walk away, but someone that would actually be a, an even um, an even match to the rest of the party. So that, that's what I tend to do to make things more dangerous and more exciting.
0: I uh, could help but think this is another thing that I, uh, Angry had a, a rant about a while back. Really ran, it's a rant, is just something you brought up that I thought was hilarious. It was a, where like a, a wizard had learned that if their enemy, their nemesis, got more powerful, they automatically got more powerful. So they started sending them out on missions so that they would level up essentially for free. I just that's one of those like meta game humor things that I just thought was hilarious.
2: That's actually a joke from I think it was in the Order of the Stick comics. Um, I, it was a it was just a throwaway gag in one panel. Where someone had managed to get a PC Nemesis, and so they're sitting in a bar, and all of a sudden there's a little ding over their head, and they're like, "Oh, I gained another level."
0: <laughs> that is fantastic. I love that. I, I actually reordered the stick, but I must have missed that. I, I remember it from your from your Twitter account, but I don't remember it from there. But yeah, that that's just like an awesome sort of meta thing. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> all right. So, is there anything that we left out? So, you again, you're talking to a brand new dm who's going to run their first campaign that they got some combat set up is there anything on our list that we missed that you think is just great advice to kind of to wrap this up on to make sure that their players have a fun time and want to come back
2: the first combat you run is going to suck it's the second one is not going to be much better There is only one way to get good at it, and that is that you keep doing it over and over again, and you'll get better at it. Um, If you go in and you get disheartened because it felt like a struggle, and it felt like a disaster, uh, and you never try it again, you're never going to be good at it. Nobody started it off good. Nobody makes the first jump. And combat is going to feel like a confusing, disastrous struggle for a while. You're going to feel like you're not in control, and that's fine. That's just the way it is because it's frantic, because it's panicked, and that usually means you're doing it right, so that's my advice to any new player out there or new DM out there. Just do it and keep doing it, and don't sweat it.
0: Uh, Caleb and I sort of did like a mini episode uh, earlier tonight, and we talked about kind of the role that combat plays in the game, like why you even have it in there and what its purpose. And one of the, the, the quotes I came up with is, the decision to fight or not to fight is the most important decision in any combat. And I think that the same thing for DMing. If you decide to sit down and be a DM, that's the most important decision. And if an individual game doesn't work out that well, as long as you're willing to come back and try it again, it's going to work out in the long run. All right, Caleb. What about you? You can uh, you can send us off here. What what last words of wisdom do you have for a fledgling DM out there?
1: I think the most important thing that has come out of this conversation is to remember to role play your bad guys. It's really easy to get caught up with the numbers and initiative and placement on the board if you're using a board and what your players are doing, it's, it's so easy to forget that your bad guys, whether they're monsters or, or NPCs, have motivation. And you need to remember to play that and make use of it, and that's what is going to make combat fun. Even if the numbers get messy and you have to stop for a second and remember how a rule works, if you are role-playing your bad guys and your players are role-playing the good guys it's going to be a fun comment.
2: Moreover, if you are role-playing the bad guys, your players will role-play the good guys. Role-playing begets role-playing.
0: So the second thing we wanted to talk about tonight was a table topic, which is basically something that happened in a recent game that we feel there's something to be learned from, or just talking through what happened might be insightful for other listeners and players. So Caleb and I play in an online Fate Accelerated game that's set in the Deadlands setting. That's a bit redundant, uh, which you can actually hear those episodes. We do post them as AP episodes. And in this most recent one, there was a there was a moment that happened that I just, kind of going back to some previous podcasts, I talked about doing what your character would do. There was a, particularly a moment with Nico in the a new world games that are now being released where – his paladin had a conflict with the necromancer, and it, it was like interparty party conflict, and it, it got kind of tense, and I kept saying, I understand that Nico's character is doing what Nico's character probably would do, but that there should be a way to create a better story by explaining why he doesn't have a problem with the necromancer. So I think this is kind of an example of that and how it actually played out. So as before, if you don't mind, Caleb, will you kind of set up the scene and and what happened, and then I'll throw in my two cents on on why I think this is a good topic for discussion?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So brief summary here. Uh, Our party was exiting the desert that had thoroughly kicked our asses. We started the next session coming out of the desert. Uh, We had found a road I believe, and we were making our way down the road or to the road. And in the distance, we saw a pretty good-sized farmhouse. So, logically, we wanted to kind of go towards the farmhouse. As we approached, Porter, who was running the game, described a scene in which there was a well and uh, three young boys being attacked by something coming up out of the ground with tentacles and then basically said, here's the scene, these guys are getting attacked, they're screaming in, in agony and pain, they're crying for help, what do you want to do? And I have a feeling if we had all been playing at the same table, we would have had that moment where the three of us just looked at each other, kind of dumbfounded, and tried to figure out what was happening, because I think we pretty much did that.
0: <laughs> yeah, even though it was over, over the... Google Hangouts in the roll twenty. There was there was like a good what I would call a pregnant pause. Oh yeah. Where, where we all just sort of like almost like we were waiting for the other guy to go first. You know like <laughs> okay well I'm gonna just wait to see if someone else volunteers. And then Scott who's playing uh, Martin. I can't say the rest of his name. but That's all we call him or I call him Titty Butts. He sort of self compelled one of his aspects which is that he's quick to run, kind of meaning he's a coward. Doesn't really like to fight. So he pretty much refrained right away and said, okay, I see no reason uh, to get involved. I think he called out that he would make sure that their bodies were laid to rest and you know he would perform last rites for them. That's basically his contribution to their situation. My character, Sebastian, who I describe often as a maverick type, he's really more of a Doc Holliday type. He is a gambler and a gunslinger, and he is not a, not a good person. He's not evil. He's just selfish. And so I was just kind of waiting to kind of see what was going to happen. And then your character, Jonah, who is a bounty hunter, and he and I have some conflict because he's captured me and we were on our way back east for me to stand trial for something I didn't do, by the way. I was framed. You decide to be the big damn hero, like a big damn moron. And so you rush in to help save these kids from this tentacle monster. And that is totally within the realms of what your character would do. I mean, you're not necessarily playing a a good guy, but I think the way Porter set up the scene pretty well that these were innocent children, you know, they they were in a situation they was very dire circumstances. So I think it made total sense for your character to to get involved, but it also made total sense for my character not to get involved. And I know fate doesn't quite work the same way as initiative. It's a little bit different than D and D, but I think there were two or three exchanges in a row where I wasn't really helping. I was just kind of standing there, and then your situation kept getting worse, and it seemed like you were going to probably die. And um, as I said, we were kind of talking like in chat and out of game. I said, I'm thinking about pulling a Malcolm Reynolds here and just shooting the kids, and that way you won't have any reason to, to put yourself in danger any longer. And I reconsidered. I decided not to do it. And I ended up getting myself involved. I came in to rescue you, putting myself in danger. And the point of that, which I think is kind of the valuable lesson to talk about, is it would have been totally in my character's wheelhouse to do that. It would have been probably harsh, but it wouldn't have been totally out of left field either. My character is definitely not a heroic type. And I think that's what we've talked before, is that sometimes it's – justification, like an alignment in like a regular D&D party where someone says, well, that's what my character would do as an excuse to just to be a jerk at the table or do something that's counterproductive, where I think it's a better idea to make a decision that makes the best story, and I felt that the role-playing that happened after that decision was much better than the role-playing that would have happened had I made that decision, so I didn't do something that was out of character, certainly within my character, to get involved after I had waited a little bit, and you were truly in mortal danger, and I just think that that that's the sort of the lesson that I would take back is don't use your alignment as an ex, as a crutch or as an excuse to do something counterproductive. Do the thing that's the best thing for the story. And I've and I feel I'm tooting my own horn, horn here a little bit, but I feel like I made a decision that was the best thing for the story because there were some great role-play moments that came out of that. So what would you kind of like? How do you think that played out, Caleb?
1: Well, going into that description, I, uh, I fully expected Jonah to die. I, I said to myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this action, I'm going to rush in to save these kids, and I'm probably going to walk away with this dead or nearly dead. The way Porter set up the, the, um, the scenario, I knew from a player, from a real-world standpoint... This was a plot hook. This was something that he had prepared. It wasn't that he wasn't forcing us into it. He wasn't railroading into it, railroading us into it. I knew that we had the option to walk away. We could have said, "Wow, that sucks. Those kids are dead," and kept walking. Um, Deadlands' Wild West setting is very much there's a lot of shit happening, and you can't stop it. It's survival.
0: Well, and, and to jump in there for a second, the way that we're playing it is that all of us are, are really surprised by this. Like, you know, our characters haven't lived in this land and experienced these things. Like, it's new to us that there's a monster. Like, none of us have dealt with monsters before right. necessarily, you know, giant tentacle monsters. Like, we weren't like, oh, another one of those. So on top of the fact that there were children in danger, we were still dealing with the fact that, holy shit, there's a tentacle monster in the middle of the desert, uh, which, right. again, I think adds to the fact that we easily could have just been like, fuck that.
1: Exactly. If if we were playing Call of Cthulhu, we would have lost some sanity points just for the sake of encountering something so foreign to us as characters. Yes. Um, and in that in that pregnant pause, in that moment, I was of two minds. I, was, I said, you know what? I want to do what's right for the game. I want to participate. Porter prepared this as a potential encounter, a potential scene. I want to play along. And on the other hand, thinking kind of as Jonah as the character, he just wanted to walk the hell away because why does he care? His aspect of being a city slicker means he is completely out of his element. He's scared. He's unprepared. None of his abilities and talents and and traits have anything that give him any sort of advantage against what the party is currently facing. And Absolutely.
0: Yet... And, and again just to jump in there, I think that one of the conceits of Fey or Fate Accelerated is is that your your characters are proactive dynamic characters. So part of the game is that you are not going to be an ob- observer to things like this. So you know, again, we're not necessarily playing heroes per se, but I think out of all the three, your character is the one that, being a soldier, you probably are used to wanting to protect people and protect the innocents. So, so while I agree with you that you you did the thing as Caleb because you wanted to play along with the game, I don't think you broke your character concept by doing so it was it was within the spectrum of your character concept that you would put yourself in mortal danger to help innocent you know we call them kids I think they were like 14 15 years old which in a wild west setting they're almost adults but they weren't you know they weren't adults yet it wasn't like they were if they were seven year old I probably would have jumped in earlier too but and going back to you know what Sebastian did is I did want to get involved I tried not to get involved but eventually I did and there are two moments that happened because of that that i think really made the story more dynamic and it made it more interesting the first one is your your character who again i mean you're proficient with some firearms like you're skilled to a point uh you got to just basically take two six shooters double fist it and pump 12 rounds into the mouth of this sarlock pit type monster that was a very cool image to me. Like I, I very vividly saw that in my mind, you doing that. And I, that that would not have happened otherwise. Had we skirted it, that is a moment your character would never have had. And I don't think that's a character-defining moment, but it does say a lot about your character. And then the other part, and this, which is actually my favorite part of this, is in the previous game, my character does something that your character doesn't like, and so you basically sock me in the jaw, kind of a sucker punch. And I deserve it. Granted, I completely deserve that, and I just took it, and that last game was like, okay, I deserve that, so I didn't do anything. In this game, after we had managed to survive, I did the same thing to you, and I, you know, I socked you in the jaw, and you said the same thing. I kind of deserve that, and so there was a moment between our two characters that have tension that I feel like really helps solidify our relationships, it helps sell the fact that we're going to stick together even though we had this adversarial relationship to start with. And again, neither one of those two things would have happened if we would have just bypassed it or if I had just shot the kids.
1: Exactly. And I would add a third moment to that list. Before we actually started engaging this monster, when Scott played out the rationalization for why he was not joining in the fight coming from his religious tale or whatnot that he spun for us I role played out Jonah throwing that religion back at him as his motivation for jumping into the fray and I had had originally in Jonah's backstory had this vague uh, vague idea of some sort of religious influence, his father was a preacher, and and something happened that made Jonah run away from the faith and run away from the church. But to be honest, I had never really solidified it. And in that moment where I was trying to balance character action versus player action, and Scott gave me that little ledge I could jump from of him using religion to not act, in that second you know, in that spot of inspiration, I used that religion as the reasoning for Jonah as a character to act. And it really just opened up the character for me. It just, in that second, in that one line I said, it told me more about his motivation. It told me more about who he was as this made-up person. And I think that was, even though there was no action there and there was no dice being rolled... That moment was just—I surprised myself, and I think I remember Porter basically his jaw dropping over the chat video, and he was pretty surprised that I pulled that out. But I, I think uh, for whatever reason that we jumped into combat, we definitely made the right choice. And,
0: and again, I, and I really kind of—I wasn't thinking about it in those lines because that's something that's really more about you and your character. So it wasn't as in in the front of mind for me, but I think thinking at it thinking back at it now all three of us had a really good character defining moment because Scott's character did refrain even when it got dangerous for both of us and we both were in mortal danger he still he said I'm not participating and that never changed If all of us had done the same thing essentially, that kind of would have devalued his decision because he has an aspect that says. He doesn't like to fight. We don't. So if all three of us had essentially done the same thing, that would have kind of homogenized us all, and and kind of separated some of the diff- or kind of brought together some of the differences between our characters. That okay, so are we all cowards? You know, are we all not that person? And then your character re- sort of threw themselves into danger. This that religion initiative thing kind of s- sparked it, which again goes back to your backstory. And then I was the reluctant hero who only got involved at the end and I still wasn't happy about it. Those are things that, again, will carry on game after game after game where we're going to build upon those moments and refine them. And I think we, we were making better characters overall. So I just I'm very happy with how that played out. And just kind of circle back around is don't use things like alignment to make the decision that hurts the game I think it's much more interesting to try to find a way to do the thing that helps the game and then justify it later and it tells you more about your character because I still haven't fully come to my own terms on why I did get involved like as a character there was there's something there and I think it will eventually come out but I again I just I could very easily could have just sit there and wait, waited for Jonah to die went on without him I would then have been a free man so you know there's definitely some selfishness that I could have let override that there as a character and again be completely within the realm of what my character would do but it would have made a much wor- ter- more sh- worse story than what we end up playing with so I know I'm not summing that up very well but I think that in, in there somewhere there's a there's a nugget of truth that I'm trying to dig out and I'm just not doing a very good job right now
1: well I think what we can say out of that what we can pull out of that is as players we are all responsible to each other and to ourselves to participate in the game. And that participation is not just solitary. That participation needs to be uh, reflective of everyone at the table, the other players and whoever's running the game. And while you can just play, participate in the game kind of selfishly, in the big picture, everyone will have much more fun if you play more cooperatively.
0: This actually harkens back... I, it just sort of reminded me, last year when I went to Gen Con, there was a game that uh, Jared, Travis, and I all got to play in. And after the fact, Travis, or excuse me, Jared and I kind of got into a sort of heated discussion about uh, role-playing and combat and, and making decisions in the game. I don't need to rehash all of it, because I think it's on a Dungeon Talk. But... I think the heart of my argument at the time was the decision to get into combat is the most character-defining decision that you make in any combat. That after you get in combat, whether you decide to sneak or flank or use a spell or you know whatever t- sort of tactics that you use, in my mind, are less character-defining, than okay, I'm willing to fight or I'm not willing to fight in this particular situation. And I think that's this, that's a very good example of that playing out. That It didn't really matter what tactics I used once I got into the fight. It didn't really matter you know, whether I used my rifle or my shotgun or my, my six-shooter. The fact that I did decide to get into combat and that you did decide to get in combat and Scott decided not to get in combat tells us more about our characters than anything else that we did that game.
1: The action itself is where the role-playing comes from. The, the fallout... Of those actions, would boil down to where your tactical choices come from, and how you choose to make use of your character's abilities. But that initial action of entering combat versus not entering combat, it that tells you a lot about your character. That tells you about it. it sets the mood for the rest of your actions. It's the flavor. And that's why I personally, as a GM, I like to use more combat situations in my games because I feel it gives players more opportunity to have those maybe not character-defining moments, but at least those moments of realization into your character's backstory or into why your character acts a certain way. Role playing is not easy for some people. For most people, I would say. So throwing more of these options at people, more opportunities I should say, for these moments of realization is valuable for everybody.
0: The last thing I'll say here is I mentioned in a recent Dungeon Talk that I had made a promise to Olaf Olafsson that I was going to review a game called White Hack and I did purchase a copy, it's on the way, haven't got it yet. So I'm really hoping that by the time we get around to the next couple of these that I will have a chance to have reviewed that and we'll get back to, uh, back to everyone with my thoughts on that particular game.
2: You can give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.